God, we thank You for the power of the cross. The cross that changes everything. God, we thank You that that is the central message of our faith. As we gather around the cross, as we realise afresh Your great love and Your great sacrifice for us. God, our hearts are overwhelmed. We stand in awe and gratitude for who You are and what You've done. And Lord, as we come to hear Your Word today, we pray that our hearts will be open to hear what Your Spirit is saying. We pray that we would be willing to respond with faith and obedience to what You speak to us today. That Lord, as we respond, we would be part of seeing Your Kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. You may take your seats a moment. It's my great pleasure and privilege to welcome Kira Pugh this morning. She, I met Kira in January and uh, she's just a fantastic lady. She really carries something of the grace of God upon her life. She's got a heart for justice and reconciliation and peace. She's got a heart for the emerging generation. She works with Archbishop Welby, um, helping to lead that ministry of reconciliation. And her task is a huge one, to develop a global network of peacemakers. So can we pray for Kira as she comes to the stage to, to preach to us today? God, we thank you for Kira. God, we thank you for the grace of God upon her life. God, we thank you that she's here with us this week as part of the Elim family to come and bring what you've laid on her heart. And so God, we just pray for a release today, a freedom and a sense of your peace and presence as she ministers in Jesus' mighty name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Bless you, Kira. It is so lovely to be with you this morning. I, um, I especially actually loved last night um, and uh, standing over there in the worship. I grew up um, in YWAM, in Youth with a Mission, and so when we were going through the countries and the flags, I felt so at home, um, just amongst a global family, the family of God, um, from all those different places. So that was amazing for me. Um, I live in London, and I've got two little girls um, and a wonderful husband called Trevor. Uh, we live in Peckham. Um, if that's, yeah, if there's any. Um, and uh, like um, was just said, I work for Archbishop Justin Welby, and we're working on how we can come alongside the church um, to help uh, everybody, anybody in the church, be, be a peacemaker. And we're currently working on some materials. So, you know, by the end of the year, if you're interested in peacemaking, we might have some things for you. Um, when I talked to Chris about coming and this gathering, we talked about the church in a changing world and how we prepare for the future of mission. And it led me to ask three questions, which hopefully we can discuss today and I'd love to share with you. So those uh, three questions for us this morning is, what is the position of culture? What is the posture of Christ? that we see and learn from? And how does that shape our practice in church? So the position of culture, the posture of Christ and our practice in church, which is lots of lovely, you know, matching words if you like that kind of thing. Um, so our position in culture, I'm gonna, you know, some of this is, is fun, some of this is to reflect on, some of this is to provoke us. The culture in which our church inhabits once upon a time, a cloud only referred to something fluffy in the sky. 
a tablet was medicine for when you were ill, a troll was a small toy, an apple or orange simply fruit to eat, and a cookie something my friend's mother's baked. But today, we have storage space in clouds, fruit is global brands, trolls are online bullies, and this talk, I wrote it on a tablet. As um, the second machine age grows and a technical digital revolution appears, so does culture and philosophy change. Faith is no longer at the center, but in the margins. From monotheism to pluralism, from religion to popular culture, from a slower pace to an accelerated frenetic race, We've moved from control to open source. We're hyperlinked, multi-careering, infograzing, media-addicted participants. Life is noisy, quiet is rare, and silence is lonely. We are savvy and smart, but wisdom eludes us. We succeed, yet feel like a fraud, or an imposter, or a fake. We are empowered, yet always looking for permission. The challenges are not hard to see. We don't need to look for long to know that the world is not as it should be. The, uh, some examples of this world not being as it should be. Um, I've spent a lot of time working with young people and thinking about ethical consumerism and, and fashion. And the true cost of a fast fashion revolution is that there are villages in China and elsewhere that know the next season's trending color because it is the color that their rivers run. One in nine people still go to bed hungry. Almost half of the world's population is living on less than two and a half dollars a day. You probably know all this. The number of people displaced by conflict, refugees, asylum seekers, or those displaced internally has recently grown fivefold. In 2016, that number was estimated at around 65 million people. Cities exist like Mumbai, where people build tall, shiny, stretching to the heavens skyscrapers alongside dilapidated, filthy slums. And climate change has become a stark reality for those who contribute the least to it, yet are affected the most. And as even we've seen on our news this week, about a month ago I was in Jerusalem, and this week we're praying for the conflict that we see there. We are a generation that are more informed than ever, yet our polarization is extreme. Fractures are creaking and foundations are cracking, whether that's red versus blue, uh, whether that's remain versus leave, rich versus poor, male versus female, politicians versus people, floods versus droughts, or welcome versus unwelcome. Diversity is God-given. But if we huddle with a people just like us, only like us, as we cluster closer, our divisions deeper. Yet we know that God has made us so vast and so different and so beautiful. And I think about that Romans passage, like we come together as one body, all in our uniqueness, all in our difference. And it is only through all of us that we could ever imagine to reflect anything of the image and power and glory of God. It takes all of us in all of our difference. 
And God is calling us, his church, into this place of fracture, into a broken world, into this place of division. Um, As we just said, Archbishop Justin has got three priorities, evangelism, prayer and spiritual renewal, and reconciliation. And his vision for reconciliation is that the church would be a presence in the midst of conflict, wherever that is, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our systems and structures. That the church would be this place that brings all healing peace, this place that reconciles division. And, um, and this place that I believe God calls us to be his hands and feet. That God's great, you know, mighty agent of change in this world is his beautiful, very, very diverse, sometimes a little bit messy church. Um, and I was thinking about church culture because as I grow up, uh, my jar of pain fills up. And I need a gospel and a theology that can encompass the brokenness of the world around me. Something that can make sense of that world. And a missiologist Duncan McLaren's words really challenged me when he wrote, Christians have imbibed a consumer mindset no less than anyone else. The churches, likewise, are increasingly responding to consumer culture by styling themselves as flexible producers and service providers from whom the Christian consumer is sovereign. If we are selling a customer product in our churches, if we are reducing the cost of following Jesus or forgoing the call of discipleship, We create shoppers who, when pain is present and when conflict causes confusion, the customer returns the product. This gospel is not the one I ordered. Our gospel and our invitation into the family of God is more than a transactional contract with a God in sky. And sometimes I think we've confused our childhood stories and we've got confused with Father Christmas and Father God. Because with Father Christmas, we know if we hold up our our end of the bargain and if we're good boys and girls, we get nice gifts at the end of the year. And if that is our understanding of God, all that does in me is breathes in me this sense of entitlement. It is my right to all those good gifts. It is my right to a happy life, a great job, a a wonderful marriage. It's my right, rather than realizing that what God offers us is to be present. What God offers us is to be with us. His presence over any gift or present. And the promise is that he will be with us in the midst of our pain. God's invitation and offering is to participate in his mission, to abide in him. In John 15, it talks about um, the the vine and, and the branches, us letting God shape us, letting God prune us, even at the cost that that might be to us. And it also says, may we love God so that we, and we are no longer considered servants, but friends friends of God with whom he shares his dream for a renewal of the world and as we're praying at the moment his kingdom come 
on earth as it is in heaven. An invitation to collaborate, to participate, to know the move of God's spirit, and instead of asking us almost for God to come, we wanna hitch a ride with wherever he's going. Um, and uh, in this context of culture and church culture, I wonder what lessons we have from the posture of Jesus. What is the posture of Christ and what do we learn about engagement with our world? And I wanted us to read a story in the book of John. So if you've got your Bible, uh, please open it to John 4 or, you know, turn on your phone app and open John 4. <clears throat> uh, verse 3. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria, Jesus, on the way. Eventually he came to a Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if only you knew the gift God has for you and who you were speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he who has his sons and his, anim than he and his, sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I will give them will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim that it is Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on the mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But there is a time coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit to those who worship him, must return in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, and the one who is called Christ, when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Then um, the disciples came back, and the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? 
And then it goes on in verse 39 says, many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. Um, this story is not just like a recounting of a story. This story is Jesus, the Son of God, pointing in his behavior and his posture to the character and nature of God. In this story, we don't just hear an interesting story, we learn about Jesus and what he is like. We learn about the character of God and what we are to be like. And so some context, when uh, traveling, Jewish people often avoided Samaria, but Jesus walked through it. What was Jesus's posture? To have proximity with the enemy, to have proximity with the other, to have proximity with the people that others like to avoid. The woman was at the well, it was the heat of the noonday sun. Most women collected their water at dawn or at dusk, but not her. And she meets a Jewish man, perhaps you can tell by his clothes, a shawl, an accent. Jesus' posture was to cross divides and was to see the image of God in the face of another, in the face of a stranger, or in the face of an enemy. Jesus asks her for water. He positions himself as a guest with an unlikely host. Will you give me a drink, he asked. Jesus' posture was to humble himself before an unlikely friend and ask to be her guest. Men and women wouldn't have spoken in public places and it would have been considered inappropriate to do so outside of kinship circles. The customary social taboos separating males and females were crossed at this point. The woman clearly says this, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? This is one of Jesus' longer conversations recorded in the gospel. They engage in a theological discussion. Are you greater than our father Jacob? I know the Messiah is coming. And except in really rare circumstances, a woman like this woman would never be able to initiate divorce. So her five times of marriage is either she's been widowed or abandoned or rejected, making it really difficult to survive in a patriarchal society without the security of a husband. And understanding that, I read Jesus' tone differently. You have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. His posture was to listen, to understand a story, to have the audacity as a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman to step into her shoes and to retell her story back to her in a way she may never have heard it said before. And the power of her hearing her story back to her and the offer of an invitation to true worship led her to proclaim the revelation of Jesus. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because the woman's testimony, as she so freely ran back to town saying, he told me everything I ever did. He transformed a destructive memory of the past and released her into a freedom and forgiveness. Maybe even the forgiveness of her enemy that might be the enemy within. 
the woman represented an outsider. And uh, she became not only an insider, but an evangelist. Someone who didn't only reimagine life for herself, but she reimagined it for her whole community. They urged Jesus to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Many more became believers. She embodied hope, and Jesus showed her hope, including the invitation to true worship and a different future, and one that she could share with Jesus. I am the one speaking. I am the Messiah. We see all these, like, this posture of Jesus just that retells like and reframes a whole understanding of a scenario of a story, like that just reshapes everything about how, for me, I should engage with the other, with someone across the divide, with someone that looks different to me, sounds different to me, smells different to me, is a different shape, a different size, a different color, a different age a different orientation, like all of these differences. Jesus speaks to me about how to engage. Jesus lived in a fragmented world, right? He took down the walls and he crossed divides. Um, and some of these divides that Jesus just so powerfully reshapes for us is I think about a class divide. Jesus, a refugee, but he speaks to the rich. Moral divides, Jesus, a rabbi who eats with sinners. Religious divides, Jesus, the Jewish man who praises a Samaritan, a good Samaritan. Age divides, Jesus, the adult, you know, the official preacher says, let the children come. Gender divides, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, appears first to a woman. Poverty divides. Jesus, fully able, associated himself with the hungry, the prisoner, and the sick, saying, whatever you did to the least of these, you have done to me. Power divides. Jesus, the accused, says, Father, please forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus wasn't determined by the boundaries of the culture, but set an example that moved beyond dividing walls, that demonstrated a different value system and an alternative way to the prevailing culture. No fracture is too big for him. No divide is too deep. No obstacle that we come across, he cannot overcome. No wall is too high, right? No valley is too deep. The Son of God comes and he crosses anything that we need him to cross and he shows us what our posture can be as we cross a divide to proclaim firstly the character and the nature of God, right? Not us, but the character and nature of God. This is our good God who made everyone in his image, who sees the face of God in the stranger, who doesn't reject the other, who never avoids those that everyone else will take a long journey around. Jesus goes closer. He goes in and he invites us to hitch a ride with him and go wherever he is going. Um, there's a, a quote in um, Philippians 2, and it's quoting an ancient hymn. It's one of some of the oldest words that we probably got in the New Testament. And this ancient hymn speaks of Jesus emptying himself, this kind of practice of kenosis. And um, 
And it's him, it's the um, early Christians like singing of this new leader, this Jesus Christ, and it's countering him to the leaders that they had of the day, the kind of Roman leaders that were considered demigods that people not only paid their taxes to but brought offerings to. And it says, who being very nature God, Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus was not grasping for equality with God like the other rulers of the day, but he humbled himself. And in Jesus, we follow a God that made himself flesh and walked amongst us. And for me, it is in Christ's humanity, in his fragility, that I am profoundly drawn to the deity that is within him. I'm profoundly drawn to his godness because he walked as a human. In 2 Corinthians 5, we are called to be ambassadors of Christ. Not because we are all whole or all healed or all sorted or perfectly placed or brilliantly filtered or excellently edited. It's not because of our brilliance and wonder that we are called to be ambassadors of Christ. And the reason I know that is because the preceding passage in 2 Corinthians 4 is titled Jars of Clay. And it describes us as these earthen vessels, these kind of ordinary cracked jars made out of the clay of the ground. And you know what? They were cracked and they were chipped. And they were really very ordinary, and I don't know about you, but I am pretty aware that I am very cracked and very chipped, and all sorts of lacking, and all sorts of inadequacies, and all sorts of ordinariness. But it says that Jesus is a treasure within those jars of clay. And so that we know that this all-surpassing power is not from us, but from him. Amen. Um, when I um, had my first little girl, Layla, I unfortunately, my appendix decided to erupt like a few days before I had birth, which meant that I got super, super sick after I had given birth um, because I had all sorts of junk inside me. Um, and we were in this um, high intensity hospital unit and I was pretty unwell. And um, my family were worried. They worried of me going into septic shock. and. Um, we were with this other young mum, and she knew that um, her baby um, was going to be uh, really difficult in terms of whether that her baby would survive. And I'd never seen so much kind of equipment outside our room all for her, and we'd got to know her really well. And as she uh, went into uh, the delivery room to give birth, we wished her well and we said a prayer. And uh, the, then quite a few hours later, the grandmother came back. And as the grandmother walked in, my mum, so the other grandmother in the story was there, and my mum was in a really fragile state herself. She was pretty scared for my life. And uh, they had this moment of these two grandmothers. Um, the, the friend walked in, and she said um, her daughter was okay, but the baby hadn't survived. And, uh, and these two grandmothers just embraced. And there was this picture for me of these two women who were really quite broken in that moment and are both really quite scared 
and scared of the loss they've just had and scared of what they might lose. And in this fragility and in this brokenness, they embraced. And the, the presence of God was with us. And um, the young mum walked in later and uh, she told us that she had named her baby that hadn't survived Angel. And uh, my dad said to her, and she is with the angels now. And uh, there's this moment where the kind of brokenness of the world meets with the brokenness of the world. And before God, he comes in his power and in his presence to bring healing and to bring peace and to bring restoration. And some of the work that we're doing with Archbishop Justin is supporting women on the front lines and women on the front lines of conflict. And uh, there's uh, this amazing activist in South Sudan, um, Martha, who's with me, she's just been out in South Sudan um, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, this, this lady is um, fondly known as Mama Harriet. And Mama Harriet has lived through 50 years of war, um, yet is working to end violence and build peace. And she is coming alongside other women and encouraging them to use their voice. And um, she uh, does these rallies where she gathers all the women around a central location and they have mass sit-ins and they pray for peace. And Mama Harriet says, if we were all alone, I don't think we could make it. But they are looking for shoulders to help them. This woman who has lived through 50 years of war and the brokenness that that means out of that place of hardship, of pain, of difficulty. She is meeting with the brokenness in the world and praying and coming before God and offering it to God. It is in our humanity, through our fragility, we meet with the brokenness of the world and demonstrate the presence and love of God. And I think when we're talking about big things like being a reconciling presence in our community, crossing divides, healing fractures, right? There's, for me at least, there's so much that goes, can I do that? Isn't that for someone else, that brilliant person over there? But it is because we love and because we serve through our earthen vessels, not despite of them, that others will know the compelling nature of the one that we serve and of the one that is making all things new. And that they will know that there is a source of love that comes from us that is more than we could ever do ourselves, but points to God. And uh, <clears throat> lastly, on my third question, I want us to think about how does this posture of Jesus, this posture that we saw with this woman at the well, this posture of him and his humanity and this invitation to come in our brokenness, as uh, 2 Corinthians says, to be these ambassadors of Christ, these ministers of reconciliation, how does that shape our practice? How does that shape our church? What practices could we kind of employ or learn that we could then be on, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our families, in our homes, in our context, in the systems and structures that surround us? And I was thinking like these postures, right? Jesus' posture is moving away from something and towards something else. So we're leaving something behind and we're moving closer to the kind of posture that Jesus exemplifies for us to have. So what are those things? What does it mean for us to move from fear to curiosity? Right? Moving from this kind of idea of the other that's maybe a bit scary and maybe unknown to thinking, I wonder what life is like for them. I wonder what challenges they face today. 
Who are we encountering? And who are we having proximity with? Who are the people that we are investing in, we're gathering around? What does our proximity look like? And does it take us into the deep fractures or cracks of our community and society and world? Moving from fear to curiosity. Secondly, uh, moving from ignorance to storytelling, this kind of deep listening that we saw in Jesus and retelling, the power of retelling someone else's story back to them in a way that releases them, in a way that gives them freedom, in a way that, that forgives them. And he's crossing the kind of divides that society puts up and saying, they are nothing for, for me. They are nothing for the God that we serve. What divides are you crossing? What divides are your churches crossing? Who are you listening to? And whose story are you retelling? What divides are we crossing? How can we move from ignorance into really profound storytelling of retelling other people's stories? Thirdly, a move from hostility to hospitality, to risky hospitality. What are we like in hosting unlikely guests? Are our churches full of unlikely guests? I um, sometimes get asked, because I've done so much work with young people and young adults, like the role of church in our, in our society. What, what might it be like for young people or young adults? And one of the things that I have a lot of hope in is the, the mix-up that you get when you rock up to a church. That for me, I go to my church and I don't get the opportunity to meet any of the people other than at church that I would meet normally. It's this place, this vibrant place of all sorts of people, this spectrum of people that, you know what, the rest of society doesn't have like that kind of place, right? It doesn't congregate like that. And we as a church are these places that we can congregate because all are welcoming. The gospel is an amazing equalizer. All are equal. You don't have to be anything or someone to come here. It's this equalizing place where all are equal. What a unique offering we have into culture. What a unique offering we have into society when we're so easily consumed with the people like us. And you rock up on a Sunday and you're like, wow, what is this vibrant, eclectic, diverse, messy, like crazy group of people? Because there is something beautiful going on. Um, Henry Nguyen wrote about hospitality. That hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. It is not to bring men and women over to our side, but to offer freedom not disturbed by dividing lines. He goes on, the paradox of hospitality is that it wants to create emptiness, not fearful emptiness, but friendly emptiness, where strangers can enter and discover themselves and be free. Not a subtle invitation to adopt the lifestyle of the host, but the gift of a chance for the guest to find his or own. What does risky hospitality look like for our churches? Who are the unlikely guests in our congregations? Or even riskier, as we saw with Jesus, who are we willing to be a guest of, right? Are we willing to be hosted by those unlikely relationships, by those unusual people, by those people we don't, not, not in our own comfort zone, not in our own place, not in our own territory, but going somewhere else and being willing to be the guest of an unlikely host? How willing are we to be risky in our hospitality? Fourthly, this idea of almost excluded to embraced, 
from judging to forgiving. Is there an enemy for you? Is there an enemy for our church? And, and it might not be as obvious as an enemy. It might be that it's just someone we've got our back to, right? We think of our enemy as our person we've got our back to. But who is it that we maybe have our backs to? And do we need to see the face of God in them? And for some of us, that enemy is actually even the enemy within, right? It's us in our really low, broken space, our full of insecurity space, and the enemy within. And we need to see the face of God in, in ourselves. And uh, lastly, from disbelief to reimagining. I just think about that woman at that well, from like the disbelief of a Jewish man engaging with her, talking to her, to her reimagining not only her life, but her community's life. From disbelief to reimagining, what is your God-inspired dream? What is your God-inspired imagination for your community, your church, your friendships, your relationships, your marriage, your children? Walter Brueggemann, in the prophetic imagination, invites us to imagine with a different consciousness. It's a little bit wordy, but he says this. The task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evolve, and evolve a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. Right, in like layman's terms for me, the task of the prophetic ministry is to evolve an imagination, to have God's dream, which are not reliant or built on the dominant culture that we live in. He describes something alternative, and it doesn't even need to be realistic, or politically practical, or economically viable. To begin with such questions is to concede to the current situation. We need to ask not what is realistic or practical, but whether it is even imaginable. Imagination must come before implementation, because without vision, we dry up, right? Without vision, we're in trouble. What is the imaginative moment that God might drop into your heart today, right, that says, I am this great big God. I am the God that crosses divide. I am the God that heals wounds. I am the God that will move beyond and press in to places that no one else will go, right? Imagine with me, love me, serve me, come to true worship, walk with me, stay with me in this vine, walk with me as a friend, and I am gonna share my dreams. We know we follow a God that has no, no small dreams, but he's in the making and the renewal of our world. What would you dare to reimagine today? What dream would you let God place in your heart for your church, for your home, for your world, for your personal life? To move away from disbelief, all the things that say that's not possible and to hold on to like that truth and trust and faithfulness of God, to say, help me dare to believe that something could be different. Help me dare to believe that I might imagine a different life. And we come to you actually, God, in our complete brokenness, knowing that this all-surpassing power is from you and not from us. And so we ask you to walk with us as pain is present and to come be with us as we step into daring to imagine 
what your world would look like and what king, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven could ever be. Um, to steal some of my boss's words to close. When we can begin to handle diversity creatively and sincerely, honoring one another in our deep differences, we can begin to flourish together in previously unthinkable ways. Reconciliation is the transformation of alienation into new creation, not only restored but reinvigorated. So I think that one of the greatest challenges of our time is this. Will we have the courage to seek such a remaking of our world? Let us pray. If you are able or would care to, would you stand with me? Lord Jesus, um, those were a lot of words, but I have a picture in my mind of you sitting at a well, talking to a woman. Those were a lot of words, but I have a picture of you in my mind, sitting in a well, talking to a woman. Lord, we know you are our sovereign king, right? our prince of peace, the great I am, the true way. And we know that you came and you walked amongst us, right? You came and humbled yourself and you were here with us. And you walked as we walk. And in your humanity, I am profoundly challenged by the nature and character of God and how you call me to reorientate myself, to reframe myself, to walk this land differently. Not like culture would have me walk it, not like the, the dominant expectations or the, the cultural like customs, but as you would walk it as you would walk this land, with arms wide open, when you're busy saying, let the people come. And how you, God, in, um, in our real ordinariness, take a risk on us. And that you believe in us way more than we believe in ourselves as you call us to be your hands and feet. So Lord Jesus, by your spirit, may you help us dream. Not lofty, childish, foolish, fairy tale dreams, but dreams about the renewal of your world. Dreams where pain is present, you are present. Dreams that in our real brokenness and in our real hard moments, you help us somehow pull people closer to you. That in our fragility, you have got the glory. 
Help us dream. Open up my eyes in wonder. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. Yeah, Father, that's our prayer. That you would open up our eyes in wonder to who you are and to what you want to do in us and through us. That God, you would fill us with your heart for others. And that Lord, you would lead us in love to those around us. God, I pray that we would have ears to hear what your spirit is saying. Eyes to see what you're doing. That Lord, we would be so full of faith and faithful in our obedience to you. God, we're excited to see what you're gonna do in us and through us as we live out your words, as we follow your example, as we bring your kingdom here to be reality on earth. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would seal this moment, that nothing would come away to distract us or take away from what you've done in us in this moment that something has changed, that we've been transformed, that we've been given a fresh heart of compassion. Lord, help us to walk this out every day. We glorify your name, Jesus. Amen.